If you're new to us, we are trekking through the book of Ephesians. And so uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter two. We'll finish up this whole chapter today. We'll take a break uh, for the next several weeks as we move into our Advent season. And we'll pick up with Ephesians at the top of the year. So in 2018, we'll pick it back up. But I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter two. We'll start at verse 18 and I'll read it through verse 22. Give you a few moments to find it and then uh, we'll read. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through Jesus, we, both Gentiles and Jews, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our father and our God, we ask your blessing now once again. That the psalmist is right that. If the Lord does not build, then we build in vain. If the Lord does not watch, then we watch in vain. And you, Father, if you don't speak through your servant, then I speak in vain. And if you don't empower our listening, we listen in vain. And so my prayer is that you, Holy Spirit, because we are the daughters and sons of Christ, that you would move within us, that you would bless what we are doing, that we might have our affections deepened for Jesus, that we might behold wonderful things from your law, and may your word fall upon soft hearts. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. A few weeks ago, I had a chance to uh, make a hospital visit and um, ended up having a couple who had their first child. And I walk in and She's about to be discharged and it kind of hit her. And she was just like, Pastor L, I've carried this baby for nine months, but now she has to go home with me. And there was this point in that conversation where I think she saw it, right? She felt it. She felt the same thing that some of you probably felt on your wedding day where there's a lot of thought and excitement that's geared towards getting the right venue and wearing the right dress and having the right food. But then you have to walk out of those doors and go live with someone until death, right? <laughs> right? That we can see sort of this big day and this momentous occasion and we don't forget that you gotta go do life in a new and different way after this. No longer do you get to sleep in on Saturday mornings because you got a baby who's crying. Your world is rocked. No longer is it just you making decisions about money, right? That there's another person in that equation with you. There's a, a way forward, right? But there, I think it's human nature where we don't see that, right? We, we get so caught up in the day of the carrying, the joy, the excitement of having a child or walking down an aisle and we don't really count the cost that my life has changed forever. 
And if it's true that something beautiful and magical and precious has just happened, then this is going to shape my life forever. I mention that because that's where the passage is moving. Last week, we talked about God's design and vision for a multi-ethnic church. And I tried to convince you from the scripture that this is non-negotiable, that this is a calling that's all in scripture, that when you see how the Bible ends, it ends when John sees people from every nation and tribe and tongue gathered around the lamb. When you go back to Genesis and you see the promise that God made to Abraham through you, the nations, plural, will be blessed. When you look at what Simeon felt when he saw Jesus, he says, look, in him is the light for the Gentiles and the hope of Israel. When you look at how Paul planted churches, he would go to cities like Iconium and Ephesus and he would go to a Jewish synagogue and then he would reason with the Jews. And it never crossed Paul's mind to have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. It never crossed his mind to have a black church and a white church. It's the church. And I made the case to you right now, whether you know it or not, Christianity is not the white man's religion. It's a world religion. I showed you maps about where Christianity is, and it is one of the only religions that is not bound by geography. If you're a Muslim, you are Northern Africa and you are the Middle East. If you're Hindu or Buddhist, you're going to be conglomerated right there in that part of the world. But I showed you a map of Christianity. It is on every country and it is on every continent that there, there is no center of Christianity right now. There are more Christians in Africa, right? In China, right? That this is not the white man's religion, contrary to what black people hear and contrary to what people think, this is the, the religion, the one true religion of the one true God, and we worship a Jewish Messiah, right? That's God's plan. And we work through the challenges of that, right? It's really hard to live that out because of culture. And I talked about culture, and culture is this forming and shaping of you and your ideals, ideals and it has a lot to do with who you grew up around. And so if you're black, you grow up over here, and if you're white, you grow up over here. And all of us think in our silos that the way I see the world is the way that everybody sees the world until those two things intersect, and you realize that, wait a minute, not everybody sees the world like me. Not everybody votes like me. Not everybody spends their money like me. Not everybody has the type of home I want. Not everybody raises their children the same way. All of a sudden, things are different. And here's what 95.5% of people do. When that clashing happens, they retreat, right? They retreat back into their silos, right? That's how you get 5.5% of churches across our country that are ethnically diverse. It's because 95.5% of the time when that happens, people don't want to stay there. That's uncomfortable. And so there's tension and hostility. And the case that he made in Ephesians 2 is that that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. And Christ is our peace. And we can have reconciliation across cultural lines, across societal lines, across socioeconomics. We can actually have peace He's reconciling us, different nations, ethnos, what he called the Gentiles, to himself. Now, I just gave you a five-minute version. Go back and listen to the podcast. That's really good, right? But we got to live together, right? That's, that, that's a good vision. That's a good dream, right? But what about we got to walk down this aisle together? We got to go out of this door and live this out. What is it that we need to remember to live this out? Paul says that it's a new way to live. 
And the first thing is that we're living out of our new citizenship. We're new citizens. Now remember, this is a multi-ethnic congregation. And at times, Paul is talking to Jews in the congregation. And at times, he's talking to the Gentiles. Now, I think who he's talking to specifically with that first statement is the, the, the Gentiles. So here's why. Look at, look at the beginning. Look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So right there, who is he talking about? You have to go back to chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. To, it, he's telling us who he's talking to. He says, therefore, I'm in chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, look at verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers. You were outcasts of the covenants of promise and you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Right. So here he picks back up on that same idea. Look at verse 18. Uh, so verse 19. So then something has happened. Jesus Christ has come and you have placed your trust in him and something has happened. You then are no longer strangers and aliens. Right. So he's talking to the Gentiles. And this is this is really new, right? Because in the Old Testament, you could be a Gentile and you could come into the family of Israel, but you could not partake of the Passover. You could come and stay around the periphery. And in order to take the Passover, you actually had to have the sacrament of uh, the, the, the covenant sign of circumcision administered, which, which was a, it was a putting off, right? The moment you became circumcised, you were putting off your old culture. You were counted Jewish. Now, you, this is important because if you go back and, and look at uh, Exodus chapter 12, look at what it says in verse 45. If they would sojourn with you and desire to keep the Passover, they must be circumcised. No uncircumcised person shall eat it. Do you see that if you were a Gentile and you professed faith in Yahweh, the God of the Jews, and you drew near, you could come near, but you couldn't come all the way in. And the only way you can get all the way in is if you were circumcised and then you have full rights and privileges. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is actually telling the Gentiles who were not circumcised, you don't need to get circumcised to be on the end. So they're not what they were. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Well, what are you then if you're not a stranger, stranger or alien? Look at what he says. You're a fellow citizens. Fellow citizens, citizenship is a big deal. When we were at Jackson State, I had the privilege, and I do call it a privilege, to minister to a lot of African students. And there was a Piney Woods, if you pass it, going down, to, uh, going down to Hattiesburg, that there were at least 30 or 40 Ethiopian students who would come to Piney Woods, and then they would go to Jackson State. And this time of year, I would always get sad because I would have to have the same conversation. Pastor L, I, I have a 3.9. Pastor L, I've been involved in RUF. Pastor L, I have community service, and this company won't hire me. And the reason they could not get hired was because of the type of visa they had when they came to the States. It was an education visa, and they were not American citizens. And I felt it. I felt that pinch every time this time of year came when they were trying to get jobs. The citizenship issue would come to the forefront of my mind. Right. 
You look at Paul's ministry in, in, in Acts, right? In Acts chapter 22, he's about to be flogged and he's about to be beaten. He's about to be destroyed. And before they destroy him, he says, would you beat a Roman citizen? And at that point, the Roman centurion says, what? Are you a citizen? How did you get your citizenship? I, I, I paid a lot of money for mine. And Paul says, I had it since birth. And at that point, the Roman centurion withdrew and he went to get his superior. He says, man, we're, we're a dead man. We were about to beat or have him beaten a Roman citizen. We can't do that. And Paul makes his appeal to a rightful trial in Rome. Why? Because his citizenship followed him wherever he went. If you were a Roman citizen, you had the right to a trial and you could appeal anything that happened anywhere in his kingdom. And you could say, because I am a Roman citizen, I appeal to the king. And they had to listen. Citizenship. And here is what Paul is telling the Gentiles, the Gentiles. You have citizenship. You have all the rights and privileges of your king in heaven right here on earth. And they follow you. Those privileges follow you wherever you are. Now, notice what it also says. They are no longer strangers and aliens. You are citizens. Citizens of what? Does the Bible actually say that these Gentiles are now Jews, that, that, that I'm saving you into this culture for you to be Jewish? Does he say now you who were uncircumcised, you are now in a part of the circumcision? He does not say that. Look at what he says. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, with the holy ones of God. Now, put this together. Last week, Paul says that Christ has, has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. In the, there were two men. There was Jew and Gentile. There was uncircumcised and circumcised. And he's abolished that distinction. And, and, and through Jesus, he has created one new man. Now, what is that new man? It's the holy ones of God. And so he tells Jews, hey, be careful. I'm not making Gentiles Jews. And he's telling Jews, I'm not making you Gentiles. I'm making the two of you one new person. You're holy. You're set apart. You're mine, says the Lord. You see what he's doing? Now, why does this matter? Because listen here, he's talking to the subdominant group in the church. He's talking to the Gentiles and he's telling the Gentiles, you are no longer strangers. You were strangers. You were no longer aliens. You were angels. I mean, you were aliens. You are now citizens. Right. You are a part of the holy ones of God. He's talking to the subdominant group. Well, well, Pastor, why would you say they're subdominant? The last I checked, Ephesus is way more Gentiles in Ephesus than they're Jews. So the Jews are, are the minority. Well, no, because the Gentiles are coming into a Jewish religion. They're coming into a religion that has history, that has the, 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 the Bible. They're coming into a history with covenants that Paul talked about earlier in Ephesians. You Gentiles, you were alienated from this. You were strangers. You had no hope. And so now the Gentiles coming into the church, they're coming into it as an ethnic majority, but they're coming into it as a cultural minority. They're coming in with an inferior status, so to speak. Right. And you know what Paul says to them? You have all the rights and privileges that they do. 
You're not a second-class citizen. You're not on the fringes. You are a citizen of the Most High God. You are a fellow citizen with the saints, with the holy ones of God. That's who you are, even though they might want you to be circumcised to be in. That's what you get in Galatians, and I think you see traces of it right here. Now, why is that important? Because Paul is saying, I'm not calling you into this fellowship to become like Jews. I'm calling you in the fellowship to become like Jesus. The circumcision that they want to put on you, that's been done away with in Christ, that in Christ you are sufficient just as you are with your hope and trust and rest in Jesus Christ. You have all the citizenship and the privileges that you desire. They are yours. And, and so here's my thing. Like, how do you apply some of this? I think you apply it this way, right? That within this church right here, right now, within our body, right? I think there are some of us who have had sound theology since we were born, right? You just kind of came out of the womb and you were covenantal, right? <laughs> you just never knew a day where you did not know Jesus, right? You know the confession of faith and you know the catechisms, right? And, and, and you know what covenant theology is, right? And you know what modesty is, right? And you know what the regulative principle of worship is, right? And here's, here's the temptation, right? The temptation here in this multi-ethnic setting is to think that God's agenda is to make the latecomers of the party, whether they be black, whether they be brown, whether they be non-Presbyterian, the, the temptation is to think that God's agenda is to make the latecomers of the party, you got to be like us, right? You got to have our theology, right? You have to know that, hey, we can express more exuberance at a, at a football game, right, than here in worship. You can't talk in worship because just, you got to be quiet, right? That our temptation, right, in our setting, if we're the early arrivers to the party, is to tell the latecomers, you know what, you got to get some type of spiritual hazing. You got to get it together and speak in our language, and then you can be full-blown citizens. And here's what Paul is saying, no, nope, no, they don't. The standard is not your culture. It's not our culture. The standard is Christ. And if a man be in Christ, that man is a new creation. And if that man wants to stand up and say amen and praise the Lord, do not let your culture, your culture press down on that. He is not here to be like you, but like Jesus. You see the nuance there? He's telling Gentiles who would have been the latecomers Christ is enough. Your faith in Christ is enough. All the rights and all the privileges, they have been won by you through the work of Jesus. You are not a second-class citizen here. But it's also a word to latecomers, right? It's a word there, right? Because he's actually pushing them, right? He's pushing them, no, don't stay on the fringes. That's Old Testament theology. Old Testament theology says if you're late, you go back there and you let the big people take care of all the decisions. You let them worship and you let them draw near. But no, no, no. Old Testament theology says if you're new, if you're late, you stay at the fringes. New Testament theology says what? In Christ, you're right in the middle too. And so if you're a latecomer to the party, you know what Jesus says? Don't sit on the fringes. You got gifts. And you got talents. And you got treasures that the Lord has given to you. 
And it is up to you. You are helping us make all things new through the person and work of Jesus. You don't need to sit on the sideline. You're not a second class citizen. Get in here and use your gifts and use your talents and contribute to what God is doing here on the earth. Get in. And it's a calling to us all, right? If we're citizens of that country, whose builder and maker is God of that city, and we're marching to the beat of that king, then you know what it means? It, it means that we cannot love this country more than that country. It means that our chief allegiance is not to make America great. It's to make Jesus great. It's to make Jesus exalted. It's to live out the gospel and to love Jesus more than we love anything and anyone. That's what it means to have a new and better citizenship. We love here. We love here. And we are faithful here. And we want to seek the beauty of here. But this is not our home. Peter says we're strangers and we're aliens here. And how dare we try to put roots here. It's not here, says Peter. It's not here, says Paul. It's there. You're a citizen right there. You see how that gets all on all of us, right? It pushes us all right, but that's the new way forward. If you think country is more valuable than the kingdom, you're not going to press forward. If you think you're a second-class citizen, you're not going to press forward. And if you think that latecomers to the party have to become like you, you're not going to press forward. We're new citizens. We have a new king. We have a new country. That's the first thing Paul says. You got to remember this. Paul says you're a new family. It's the second thing. And here I think Paul is talking to both audiences. You see, it's possible to be citizens in the same city under the same rule or the same king and not be at peace with each other. Just, just turn on the news, any channel. And you will see that we are in a country, and the country is divided, and it's always going to be divided, right? Always. There's, there's never been a time when the country was united, not here, right? So it's possible to be, have the, to be under the same type of government and still not love each other. And that's why Paul says, you're not just new citizens. He says, you're a new family. Now, look at this. Look at what he says. I love what Paul's doing. He's using this imagery, right? First, there's this image of a kingdom, your citizen, right? Then he switches gears. He uses this imagery of a family. That's, that's the metaphor I'm using. You're the household of God. Like, look at the text. You, look at what it says in verse 19. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And on top of being citizens, you're also members of the household of God. This is what one commentator said. He says, this household of God is a metaphor for family, and it expresses the sense of belonging and closeness and love and affection, the things that are experienced within the bonds of a family. Now, go back to Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul talks about we've been adopted in Christ, right? And adoption, it, it primarily has to do with me as a person being adopted by my father, right? But here, here's what Paul does. He switches language in this chapter. Now he uses this household of God. You know, you want to know what he's, he's directing our attention to? Not just me being adopted into the family of God, but he's directing my attention horizontally. 
who else has been adopted into his household. He's taking our attention upward, and now he's saying, look out, look around you right now. This is the household of God. Family, we're a new family. Now, I know when I say family, some of you did not have a father, right? And so when I hear family, that does not, it, he just wasn't present. That does not compute, right? When you hear, when Jesus says, pray, our father, you're like, wait a minute, my father didn't talk to me. I don't know him, right? That some of you, the, the, the metaphor of family or the image of family, it doesn't bring joy, right? It brings pain because your family was broken. And your tendency is to think that the body of Christ is somehow going to function like that. And here's what I want to I just put there, right? What if the reason that you're hurting and longing over this idea of family is it's actually because God actually put something in there that's actually right about family? That in your heart, you know, I ought to have a sister that I don't fight with every time we're together. That in your heart, you know, man, it would be nice to sit down next to a gray-headed old man who's my granddad and just, man, just talk to me about life. I want a mother that can check on me when I have my baby and can come and take some time and, and come alongside me, right? That I think the reason there's pain is because we know that something's missing. And here's what I think the Bible is saying, right? That that longing for family it might be met in your earthly families, but the place where it is, it's in God's family. God says, I'm, I'm a good father, and I'll give you good brothers, and I'll give you good sisters, and I'll give you good mothers and mom's Bible study who will cry with you and teach you God's word. And I will give you a man in the church who will come after you when you're straying. I will do all of this. And what you start to see when you look at the scriptures is there's a really high view of family. And, and so if you go back to Abraham, right, you don't have to go there. But think about Genesis 11 through 19, that, that Abraham has a nephew and his name is Lot. Did you, did you ever pay attention that when, when Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldeans, that Lot went with him? That's not even his child. Why did Lot go with Abraham? Because Lot's dad died. And so Abraham and Lot, they're uncles and nephews. And when you look at Lot, Lot is like a really bad nephew, right? <laughs> like they grow, their business grows, and they have cattle and land and animals. And Abraham is like, look, man, I'm not going to fight you. We're, we're, we're kinsmen. You choose where you want to go, and I'm going to go over here the other way. And they, they shook, and they kissed, and they went separate ways. Well, Lot chose the land that looked like Eden, right? He chose this land towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He chose by sight. And then these kings came through and they got him, right? I mean, they like, they got him, his stuff, his women, his children, his son. I mean, they just got they, everything he had, they took. <clears throat> One man escaped and went and found Abraham. And Abraham got 318 of his goons, and I'm gonna call them goons, <laughs> because that's what they were. They got on horses and they got weapons and the Bible actually says they went and defeated all the kings and restored Lot and brought Lot back. I mean, think about that. That's what good uncles do. You go kill the people who take your nephews, right? I mean, read, I mean, just, that's, that's what uncles do. 
If your nephew, the son of your father, he's dead, and now him, your nephew's in trouble, and he's over here in a distant land, what do you do, Uncle, Uncle Abraham? You mount up and you go get him and you bring him back. That's what uncles do. It didn't just stop there, right? Lot moved back to Sodom and Gomorrah. And this time, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham. Will I hide from my servant Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham says, no, 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 no. Lot is over there. Oh, Lord, do not wipe them away. If there are 50 righteous people, will you spare? I will. If there are 40 righteous people, will you spare? I will. If there are 10 righteous people, will you spare? I will. And there were not 10 righteous people there. And the Lord, was, he just burned it up. But you know who, who, who made it out? Lot. That's what uncles do. Uncles pray and they plead and they storm the throne room of heaven for their nephews and nieces. That's what uncles do in the Bible. But here's the thing about the family in the Bible. It is all, it is not always just blood relatives. Right. You think about Abraham I and mean, you think about David and Jonathan, that when you read the stories of David and Jonathan, like think about what David and Jonathan, what said about them in 1 Samuel 18. Now, Saul, evil king who's over Israel, Jonathan, his son, David, the heir apparent. Get this image. This is the king. This is the king's son. This is the king's son's best friend. You remember that story? When Saul is out of his mind, he hates David. He wants to kill David. And the Bible actually says that the hearts of David and Jonathan were melded together. They were knit together in love so that they loved one another as their own selves. Now, what happens when your crazy dad is angry at you? Why are you hiding this traitor from me? You son of a I forgot what he says. He's like he talks about his mother or something. It's weird language. <laughs> and he actually says, like, how, how dare you? How dare you cross me? Do you not know that as long as that man is alive, you will never be the king? And you know what happened? Jonathan came to David's rescue. Jonathan would not, did not want to be the king. Jonathan loved the Lord so much that it compelled him to be even unfaithful to his earthly father. Think about that. That's family in the Bible. Their hearts are knitted together even more profoundly than husband and, I mean, father and son. Friend and friend is deep. Think about the last words of Jesus. Not just I thirst, not father, why have you forsaken me? You want to know somebody? I, I think the most beautiful last words of our Savior is when his mother is right in front of him, watching him be destroyed. And his best friend, John, is right there. And before Jesus dies, you, you remember what he said? He says, Mother, behold your son. And what did he say to John? John, behold your mother. And John actually says that Mary lived all of her days in whose household? With John. Now, here's the thing. Jesus had another brother. His name was James. 
who wrote the epistle of James, who was not a believer in Jesus at that point. And do you want to know what Jesus does on the cross? He commends his own mother, not to James, but to John. John, you take my mother and you love her like a son. Think about your salvation and the language it's couched in. You have been adopted by your father in heaven. Think about what Hebrew says about Jesus. He is not ashamed to be called your what? Not a savior and king. He is all of that. But there's an intimacy there, right? Your brother. You see, here's what Paul is saying to these Jews and Gentiles in the same church. Your new family. Look across the room. These are your aunts. And these are your uncles. And these are your brothers. And these are your mothers. And these are your fathers. They're right here in the room. And they might not look like you. And they might not vote like you and they might not make the same amount of money you make. But look up in this fellowship right here. You are not brotherless and you are not fatherless and you are not daughterless. Even though you might have had miscarriage after miscarriage, there are daughters in this church who need your affection. You see? That's what Paul is saying. We're fellow members of the household of God and we pray for one another. We go get one another. When one another is wiling out, we go find you. Right. And when you're being unfaithful, we discipline you. Right. And when you're downcast, we visit you. And when you die, we're going to lay your body to rest as God carried the body of Moses, right? Tenderness and warmth. And so here's the thing that I think this passage does to us, right? I think it, 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 it warns us of what appears to be family, but is not family. And I think being in the South, it does not help us. And, and I hear this from Northerners, right? I hear this whole thing about Southern hospitality and it's a facade, right? People are always doing me like this, Pastor L. They're saying, come on in, you're welcome, come on in, right? But then they don't want to really, they don't really want, they don't want the real me, right? And they have their dinner parties and do their own things, and I don't get invited because I'm an outsider, right? And I don't fit in. And so in the South, we have a, a really big problem with this. We will smile in your face and talk about you behind your back, right? It's just, it's just you go to New York, they're just not going to talk to you. They're just not going to speak. They're not going to shake your hand. They're going to walk down the street and act like they don't even see you. You come to the south, hey, brother, how you doing, brother? How you doing? No, we're not brothers, right? I know what's going on in here, right? Here's what this passage is pushing against. It's pushing against the appearance of family and the reality of family. You see, the appearance of family could show itself just like this, right? With ethnic or cultural Diversity. And that is nothing more than just getting a bunch of people who are different in a room, but that still does not equate to warmth and affection. 
There's an African-American professor at uh, Southern Seminary. His name is Jarvis Williams. And here's what he writes. This is, listen carefully. Biblical racial reconciliation requires more direct and continued involvement than mere ethnic diversity. Ethnic diversity could be merely having a meal with a person across ethnic lines once a week. I mean, once a year. Ethnic diversity could be just getting together to have a Martin Luther King weekend service, right? Ethnic diversity only means that people from various backgrounds can worship, work, and live in the same environment for a set amount of time. To the contrary, biblical racial reconciliation means that different races are now members of the same spiritual family in Christ. This new race, this holy ones of God, which we are, it transcends our old ethnic identities. My love and service to my Christian brothers and sisters should transcend any love, affection, favoritism, devotion, and service that I might offer someone in my own race just because we have the same skin color. How you feel when you hear that, right? Because I think it, it gets over me, right? So much of our lives, they're defined by skin color. I'm black and I'm white and I'm this. And what he's saying is when we become this new man in Christ, we're a third kind. We're a third type of race. We're the holy ones of God. And guess what? We're not going to fit in either category perfectly. Which means if you're a black person and you're pursuing this multi-ethnic dream and vision, get ready to hear it. You're a sellout. Get, I mean, that's how you know when you're really living cross-cultural lives, when your family of origin start to kind of call you out on being a sellout, that probably means you're living this stuff out. Right? If we're really a new race, we're a new type of people. Don't question my blackness because I feel called to pastor a multi-ethnic church. I can still do this and still care about my people of the flesh. This is not a greater than, right? I mean, think about it. It also means that if you are a white person and you have an, an, an Indian and American Christian friend and you grew up in a sorority and now your sorority friends want you to come and do these things and you prefer, like you prefer and desire, you know what, my Indian Christian American friend, I would rather spend time with her, you're going to be called a reverse racist. You, you just will be, right? People don't, they don't get it, they don't understand. That in Christ, you're new. You're not what you were. You're something altogether new. And what Paul is saying, this is your family. You're in a new family. That's why we sang that song, in Christ, no east or west. In Christ, no north or south but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. Join hands then members of the faith, whatever your race may be, whoever serves my father is surely kin to me. In him those walls shall tumble down that bear hostility and the whole family of God shall dwell in unity. That is putting Ephesians 2 to a hymn. Right? That's what Carl Ellis, what he said last week when I quoted him, white is beautiful. Being black is beautiful. But blackness and whiteness 
It's not more beautiful than Jesus. You, you got to believe that. We're a new family. The last thing Paul says is that we're a new temple. And here I think Paul is primarily talking to the Jews. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, you know the Jews struggled, right? They struggled. They absolutely struggled with, wait a minute, we've been knowing the, priest, the, the priesthood. That's 2,000 years old, buddy. What do you mean that we don't need a new priest? What about Jerusalem? What, what do you mean no Jerusalem? What about a, a sacrifice? What do you mean no sacrifices? And what Hebrews is doing over and over again, you have a greater sacrifice in Jesus. He is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and everything in that sacrificial system. It was preparing you for the day that the real lamb would come. The priest said, I know you feel like you need to go a priest to a priest, but you have a greater priest in Jesus. He's a great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. Right. Jerusalem, I know you love Jerusalem, but there's a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're longing for now. And you want to know why that's important? Jerusalem was Jerusalem because the temple was there. The priest had a job to do because the temple was there. The sacrifices were offered in the temple. In other words, the temple was a really big deal if you're Jewish. Now, as a side note, Jesus himself, when he was on earth, in Matthew 24, when his disciples were marveling at the beauty of the temple and the size of it, you know what Jesus says? Look how beautiful this is. There will not be one stone left here, right? And so like, what? What do you mean? He said, yeah, it's going to get destroyed. And in AD 70, it did. Paul wrote this letter between 60 and 62, eight years before the temple was destroyed. So this is prophetic that we're on holy ground right now. In the back of the Jewish mind, every Jewish person in that congregation, do we still go to the temple? Where do we behold our God? Where will we dwell with our people? Where will we see that our sins are atoned for? Who will be our priests? And the basic question is twofold. What about the temple operations? And then what about the temple as a building? And Paul just told them in earlier in Ephesians that, that, that the blood of Christ has been shed. You don't need to go to the temple to go meet with a priest to have him offer something. Jesus has offered. But what about the building, the structure? The temple was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was an impressive sight to behold. If you're traveling through Jerusalem to see it, where will God display his glory, Paul? Where do we go to see that our God matters? Where do we go to see that our God is present and is here and is glorious here? And Paul says, I'll tell you where you go. And you don't have to go to Jerusalem to see it. The temple of God is closer to you than you think. And look at what it says in verse 20 through 22, that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God by the spirit. He switches metaphor one more time. Kingdom, family temple. You want to know what Paul is saying? 
the Jews would have longed for a sight to behold their God. They would have longed for something impressive that would stand out and show the nations that their God matters, that he is present. And you want to know what Paul says that new temple is? It's when this church gets together. That's where the glory of God is. In this ordinary getting together to uh, look at what he says. Look at the language, right? We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The message of the apostles, the preached word that this is the Messiah. We're standing on that. The preached word of the prophets, like, like Isaiah prophesied that God would send a cornerstone and this cornerstone would crush you. And if you did not trust in the cornerstone and, and rest on him for your salvation, you're dead. It's going to crush you or you're going to stand on it. One of the two, I'm sending my stone. And he, what is Paul doing? The very cornerstone of this new temple that Christ is building is the gospel itself through the person and work of Jesus we stand on that. We rest on that. What has Christ accomplished for us through his son? That's the cornerstone. And it's never moving. And it is stable. And no man, woman, child, demon, Satan himself, you cannot move this cornerstone that God has laid. And on top of that is the preaching and teaching of the prophets and the apostles and the writings. And there, Paul says, brick by brick, God is putting together this temple. And it's a multicolored temple. But black people and white people and Jewish people and African people and Indian people, he's putting a temple on display that's multicolored and multi-ethnic. And he says, there, right there, my glory will dwell right there. Now, think about this, that they're in a house church. They're in a house church more than likely. And they're, they're wanting to go back and see something impressive. And what Paul is saying, no, what's impressive is your little gathering and your little house with the dishes in the sink 